Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. It is so hard to find a doctor, get an appointment, and know they take your insurance and not have to take two hours to get there and back in traffic. Highly recommend ZocDoc, and it's free. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash humans. ZocDoc.com slash humans. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Eliza Pressman, and today's episode is super important because we are talking about how to teach our kids to consume news responsibly to understand the difference between propaganda and information and to know what to post if you're going to post and how to repost without accidentally doing something that inadvertently makes this world more of a mess than it already is. For this episode, I really wanted to have Jessica Yellen because she's a political journalist whose award-winning career reporting for CNN, ABC, MSNBC, and being the White House correspondent for CNN, she has so much experience, but she ditched all that to start News Not Noise, and she has a newsletter and an Instagram that you can follow that actually really does deliver the news in a clear concise way. And it's completely thoughtful and careful. And I really encourage you to have conversations with your kids about how to consume news responsibly. Now, I want to be clear about development. Young children should never watch the news. And frankly, older children and adults should limit how much they watch the news. And I highly encourage you to do more reading than watching. But when you read and watch, it's important to have the tools to be critical thinkers, especially in an era that is so post-truth that it's hard to distinguish between what is information and what is absolutely framed to mess with you emotionally and intellectually. 
If you enjoy this episode, I want to ask you to please write a review because I am sure that even the fact that I'm talking about the news, I'm going to get slammed with negative feedback. And I never get negative feedback except for when it's like this heightened topic. I just know that inevitably people and bots are going to come down. So please, if this is appreciated and you really feel like you're benefiting from this, go to Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, give it a five-star rating and write a little review. I want to drown out the noise of the absolute nastiness that's going on out there. And of course, please don't forget to pre-order the five principles of parenting, your essential guide to raising good humans. I could not believe more passionately that this is important to have out in the world. And again, it's the same theme. We want reliable, valid information that isn't there to scare you, freak you out, make you feel feelings that are so big you can't think. It's there to support you and give you the freedom to make the decisions that you want to make. I'm so excited to have you, Jessica Yellen, because parents are so desperate right now to both help their children understand what's going on and also to help their older children and teenagers understand how to consume information and news. And it is a post-truth world. It's really hard to figure out what in the world is honest and informative and what is propaganda. It's really hard to figure out even in mainstream news how to distinguish between some a bias and a non-bias. And I know you have a lot to say about bias in the news. So I want to talk about that. I mean, there are just so many things we need your help because we want our kids to be able to consume information in responsible ways and then share information in responsible ways. And clearly that is not happening right now. And we have the opportunity to talk to you about this and go back to our kids and adolescents. And, you know, in this, this is our small way of making change in the world. So first let's demystify journalism. How do you even know if you can trust a source? Like, let's go back to that. How do you know if you can trust a source? Okay. Let me just say, first of all, this is a really challenging moment for adults. So I have a huge amount of compassion for kids and anybody who has to explain this to kids. It's difficult for me to navigate, and I've been doing this for decades. So everybody should give themselves like a little bit of a break and say we're all sort of figuring out this new world together. And the other thing I'd like to say, and I'm trying to start most of my conversations in public during this period with the following phrase, I'm coming to this conversation with compassion and curiosity. And I would ask anybody else who's listening to this to do the same. In other words, soften and open to hearing other points of view instead of thinking oppositionally. Maybe there's something to learn. Maybe there's a way to approach it with your heart instead of your head. Because the more we can get out of righteousness and into learning, the better chance we have at communicating with each other, making progress, and having, honestly, in the end, peace, which is everybody's goal long term. Jessica. That that is parenting advice. Oh. I know you, you're like I'm not here for parenting advice. I can't I'm give going. Advice. I don't know. I said, I said beforehand <laughs> I can't give parenting advice. Okay. <laughs> no, I think if if we all enter every conversation like that, we're in a better position. And certainly, it disarms everyone 
So I, I love that. And I think that holds true in, in any conversation, particularly with adolescents. And so that's true. And also I think it's helpful to hear that even someone who's been doing this for decades is feeling like this one is a doozy. Yeah. So I'll answer your question. How do you know whether you can trust a source? It's trial and error. And it's sort of like if you're, you know, you try somebody, right? You you get introduced to somebody and you make a judgment based on the quality of the introduction, the context in which you met them, and how knowledgeable they seem when they're talking. So let's say somebody I know is very involved in national security, but doesn't know anything about cybersecurity, says, you've got to talk to my best cyber person. If I already trusted the first source, the second source has a lot of credibility. If I'm randomly somewhere and I like am Googling and I look up a name and I don't know yet, it has less credibility to begin with, right? So context and uh, matters a lot. Then the first time I talk to a source, I don't take what they say to the bank. I let it inform my understanding. So, huh, this person said all these things. I often will ask on a first time, ask them to explain some concepts to see how much they understand and how much they're able to help me understand. And it's like, if, if we have one good conversation and their info checks out, and we have another good conversation another time and their info checks out, the third time, I'm probably willing to accept their information as one of my solid sources. But it's a process of repetition. Now, if your source happens to be like the chief of staff at the White House, you don't need three goes, right? So again, it's context, but it's also like pattern testing and learning. How do you explain different sources? Like when we're listening to a news story and you hear this type of source versus that type of source, what are we looking for to get to the best truth? Yeah, it's very confusing because we say like, I'll often say the White House says, and obviously the White House does not speak, it's a building. (laughs) That means an official within the White House. And it's hard as a viewer, I get it, or as a reader, because it really depends on that journalist and whether you have a lot of faith in that journalist. A couple key terms to know is, you know, when they say an official said, but they don't say the name, that means it was, or they said it was on background. That lingo means some official allowed the reporter to talk to them, but will not let them quote them or use their name. And why would that happen? Well, no one in particular wants to take the blame for a thing, or they don't want it to be attached to somebody if it's the White House. It's sort of generic administration policy, not specific point of view to one person. But it can also be because somebody's leaking something, like on Congress, on Capitol Hill, you get leaks all the time. And so it'll just say, according to a Democratic congressional staffer, and they tell you that on background. Now, what's the best source? Somebody who's willing to go on the record with their name. Because you as the audience can judge for yourself how credible that person is and how close they are to the information. But in this day and age, with the speed at which reporting happens, very few people are willing to go on the record in that way. And it's sort of like our, our habits have changed. So we allow for more like unnamed sources. Now, on that speed topic... How important is it to get, like, what is the balance between getting information quickly and knowing that because it was so fast, it's going to change and it's going to change the course of how we think about things? So this is the big thing that's changed in my career as a reporter. When I started, 
There wasn't Twitter. There wasn't social media at all. There was only one cable news channel, the CNN. And so, you know, a reporter could talk to somebody in the White House and they'd assume that unless they were talking to CNN, they could have a conversation and then maybe in an hour change it. And probably it wouldn't end up anywhere until the five o'clock news or the six o'clock news or the next morning of the newspaper, which made people a lot more willing to have more open conversations, share more. Then cable news proliferated. So an official could tell a reporter and end up on the air quickly. And then it changed to email. Like when email was happening, stuff could get sent around really fast. That made officials more cautious. And then with social media, it became reality that an official could be talking to a reporter. And as they're speaking, the reporter is typing up a tweet that they will send instantly, right? So that has wildly changed how we relate with our sources, how politicians and their staffs talk, and also the speed at which all of us get our information. And it's made it much more fast-paced, far less embedded in context, more piecemeal. Like you get a little bit of info on this and a little bit of info on that without a big picture, which is one reason I think we often feel like we don't understand what's happening. I always call it firebomb reporting. Like this crazy yeah. thing happened over there. And, and and things end up being wrong more often. So I always say I'd rather be right than first, but that's not really how the business works. And now for a break so I can tell you about my sponsor. It's that time of year again. We're all starting to make our lists for what presents we have to get. And Skylight Frames has the answer for you. So you know that you cannot get grandma another boring candle. I mean, we all love a candle, but does that feel as personal for someone so special? And if you're looking to up your gift giving game, give skylight frames to your family, any family, any friends that are far away, somebody who's hard to get a gift for, like someone who has everything, but loves your kids. Very good candidate for skylight frames. Here's the thing. It is the most personal and thoughtful gift updated for the modern world, but it's so awesome because there are so many beautiful pictures that you take of your kids and then you just don't do anything with them. But who else cares about 15 versions of your child looking cute in a pair of pajamas than grandparents? And you want to share them. And so now you can get Skylight Frame. They could be totally across the country. And now they have this frame that changes and you can put pictures from where you are in your phone that get to Skylight Frame to your parents. How cool is that? As a special limited time offer for our listeners, you get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash humans. To get $15 off your purchase of a Skylight Frame, just go to skylightframe.com slash humans. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash humans. Okay, we're taking a quick break. And before I tell you about my sponsors, please go and order The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans by Dr. Aliza Pressman. It's, it's been very well-reviewed. I have to say, I'm feeling pretty excited for you to get it. I feel like you're going to appreciate it and have a toolkit by your side to read in parts or in whole as you see fit 
in one place and it's for you. After all these years together, I kind of have a sense of what everybody needs and wants. I really wrote this, keeping in mind that no information can cause chaos and too much information that isn't serving you can cause rigidity that doesn't do anybody any favors. So this is that middle space that will be there for you whenever you need support. Okay, so go order it, please. What's the payoff? Like, what what is the race? And do people's oh. opinions get massively swayed from whoever comes out first? I don't think so. It's like any industry. Within the industry, whoever's first won. And it's just the way it is. Even if, and I always thought this was not so because even if the White House is like handing out paper to everybody, the first person who got the paper and can run with it won. Now, there's not an actual contest, but it's just sort of how the business is. And so, you know, speed matters, especially in a clicks world. Okay. What I'm also hearing is that the journalists, not just the sources, but the journalists themselves matter. Yeah, that's true. Like who is doing the, what they're process is and where they're working, what the standards of that place are. Yes, that matters. Yeah. Honestly. This gets to the question of how do we explain bias and how do you feel about it when it comes to reporting? So I care most about rigor in reporting. So what's the process of confirming and the standards you use to report? And then I can tolerate bias. And let me explain. I think bias, there's, right, there's just like straight, there's no such thing as no perspective, right? We can agree. Everybody has a company. We're human. We're human. Even AI has a perspective, right? So Mm -hmm. they say, so there's facts that we can know, like, sorry, but, you know, 20 people were killed in the shooting, five were wounded. Facts can change. Two die, 22 were killed, three were wounded. When facts change, that doesn't mean they were wrong. Sometimes the facts change. Then there's perspective. We all have our experience and where we come from. Somebody who spent years as a Mideast correspondent will have a different perspective from somebody who spent years as a White House correspondent. They bring different point, like experience to a story. Say more. Like, is it that if you are embedded in a particular part, region and story that you're going to tell me the difference? Okay. It's, it's a bit of what pops to you. Somebody who's lived in, let's just take it out of the Middle East, somebody who's lived their entire life in an earthquake world, like in a state that has earthquakes, when they're at some new tech convention and they find the device that is all about early detection of earthquakes, that might be the story they lead with. That might be how they frame the tech convention around the earthquake thing. But somebody who comes from a place that has like a lot of droughts might be really interested in the drought thing, right? So it just kind of, shapes how you go into the narrative. It's it's your come from, what you're highlighting, where you see texture and interest, right? It sort of just informs your take on it, how you tell the story. But they could end up with the same facts in the end, right? I'm cool with that. It's just is. And then bias is where I come in and I don't believe in climate change. And so I am determined to show that all the climate tech at this climate conference is bogus, right? And the thing about bias is if it's even okay to watch and consume outlets that have bias, as long as you know it's there and you can correct for it in your head. 
So, for example, there are stories Fox News covers that other networks don't or that MSNBC covers and other networks don't. And you can learn by watching that story on that network and in your head a little bit correct for, I know that they have this perspective and they're going to skew it a bit that way. And you just, in your mind, understand why they're framing it the way they're framing it, but work to take information from it that is valuable to you. Okay. So I think that that's a great example of something we can explain to our kids because when they're seeing clips of something, they might not know the what we know, which is a particular news network has yes. a spin that they were unaware of, but coming in with, okay, let's ask some questions about what perspective this, you know, these three stories coming from this network are showing us yes. versus another one. And this is one of the reasons it's a really good point that social media is so challenging because it's out of context, right? You just see some dude yelling about a thing and you have no idea what that person's perspective is, what their motive is. Are they paid to say that? Are mm. they from a specific political orientation where they're, this serves a larger goal? And that's why I think it's really important to disbelieve what you see on social media unless you have understanding of who's telling it to you, what their come from is, and why. Or if you've consumed them, just like I said with sources, the first time you don't believe it, you take it in and you're skeptical. Second time, third time, if they've proven right, maybe you can start trusting them. Okay. So one of the things that I notice, and this is a very common thing with adolescence, is reposting. Boy. And it's just like, they might be stills that are just like an opinion or a position. Maybe it's got statistics on it or something. And I understand because it's like, trying to connect and build community and show your solidarity or it's virtue signaling or it's a number of things. What are some ways to explain to adolescents? And I know you are hesitant to give advice about parenting, but let's just, you're talking to a group of adolescents. What are the a few questions they can ask themselves before they repost? I would suggest that you stop, especially during this war when every bit of information that's shared is so hugely consequential. Before you repost something, pause, exit out of your social media app, go to two new sources that you have used before, okay? And I know that every news source I could name has been mistaken at some point or has been biased or screwed up, yes. And also, at the same time, major news orgs like CNN, like NBC, like the New York Times, even though they can make mistakes, have rigorous checking standards. And so I would check to see if that fact is being shared by one of your major news orgs. Now, another way to do it is to take the exact same information, take a clip of the phrase that's there, say whatever it is, this many people died or that, you know, a negotiated summit is taking place. Take that phrase, copy it and drop it into Google and hit news and see if anyone's reporting that. And if they're like fringe, weirdo, rando blogs, maybe don't reshare it. Don't reshare it. And if it's legit news orgs, then you can feel comfortable sharing it. And I, I just want to say, I know that there's a hesitation to, you know, go with mainstream media and we have critiques. And yes, there's plenty of reason. I am a critic of mainstream media. I have been, right? But not for this reason. I respect the hell out of the standards they've established to try and get it right. And I can name some places, you know, 
ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, NPR, um, Politico, Axios, the New York Times, the Washington Post. What else is over there? I mean, I look at Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya for content. I know that they have a specific take. And so I factor that in. But if there's other things people want to know, they can message you and I can tell tell you if I, I consider them good sources. You know what I also wonder is, are people looking at the other posts that that person has posted before? The That's original post that they're posting. So sometimes you're reposting a friend's post and it seems like something you're aligned with. And then you go to the original post and you see a host of posts that you would not be aligned with. Oh, that's a, yes. I didn't even, yes, I always do that. And sometimes you want to see, is that post, like read the caption, because sometimes the person who seemed to post it originally is crediting someone else. And so then you go back to their account. Yes, that's that's true. Going back to, and, and reading the captions, because you're right, sometimes a post seems benign and then the caption is actually quite different. And this is another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is why are we talking about this and why is this so meaningful right now? How is social media impacting how we're consuming the news? It is hugely consequential right now. The news on social media is honestly life or death. It is shaping policy. It is driving hate crimes. It is causing people to change their lives and their patterns and who they trust and how they live. And it could drive the outcome of peace in the Middle East. And I don't think people fully appreciate the extent to which while there's a hot war on the ground, there's also an information war in our hands, in our phone. And it's incumbent on each of us to be responsible about the information we share. Because the post that you might just repost from your friend then gets reposted by a million other people and then drives a global viral news story that could be wrong or incomplete or cause a disruption in something that could have brought a calm to this conflict. I mean, I don't want to get into all the details. I've reported this on my In News Not Noise, but all the back and forth over that early bomb and fire that hit Al-Shifa Hospital ended up scotching, canceling a summit that the U.S. was going to have with some Arab leaders that could have gotten humanitarian aid into Gaza sooner. And it was because of that, you know, messy reporting that this all got held up. So I just- terrifying. We've never lived through this before. I mean, there it's it's happening real time. And so much of what you're seeing, I get yelled at for not posting things. And I'm like, first of all, that looks a lot like a picture I saw out of Syria last year. And I mm-hmm. don't know if this is true. And so I'm very careful about what I share. Yeah, I actually, I saw you posted recently about, and I think New York Times reported it, that there are these photos and videos getting shared that aren't even from the current war. Yeah. There's from Tajikistan or Guatemala, Syria were the ones they pointed to. And there was video I saw in the early first days of the war that I was so moved by. And I was quickly, you know, found out that it was from also another conflict. And so what I've decided to do is I've, you know, figured out there's a few photographers that I know are in Gaza. And I've seen them post over and over, and it's been uh, correct. 
And so those are the photos I will share. And I've just, I share those and then I'll share photos that have been verified and shared by some of the major news orgs I mentioned. Because see, news organizations, they have some people inside Gaza who can confirm stuff. They also have the resources to do like geolocating and have people who've like been in the region look at the photo and say, is that, does it add up or not? And and we don't have that. So that's why I trust, I look to those orgs to lead the way. It's so important for conversations with young people to understand this because one of the wonderful things about adolescent brains is like all gas, no brakes, and it gets them going. But it also is like there are no brakes unless we sit there and really help with the brakes. And I think that some of this stuff on social media is so powerful and it's so believable. It's so believable and it's scary. Yeah, I see I see stuff all day long that I know isn't true. And I see it being shared like wildfire. And I see stuff that's, you know, people who are sitting in front of the, you know, news article behind them and a map of the region, acting knowledgeably, explaining this and that. And it's just conspiracy gaga. And you're and <laughs> there's no way to stop it all. It's mm. so there's so much BS circulating. And I just, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do is spend less time on social media, which I know it's really hard, but to the extent that you can try to get some of your news from a place that puts it in context, I really encourage that. I feel less agitated and depressed if I'm taking in the exact same material from like the New York Times website or the Atlantic or, you know, there's so many great places doing great work now tablet, you know, any of these places, if you pause and you're, there's just like a slower speed and it feels more rational and and compassionate. And now for a break so I can tell you about my sponsor. Beyond Brew is the deliciously balanced dose of wellness your body and brain crave. Wake and Brew is the live conscious potent blend of six superpowered organic mushrooms, including lion's mane and reishi, plus powerful pre and probiotics for digestive support. They designed this formula to support sharp cognition, gut and immune health, and overall feel goodness. And you can enjoy this beyond brew as your new morning ritual by itself. Or if you are like me and not ready to kick the caffeine habit, Simply add it to enhance your morning coffee. You can also put it in smoothies or bowls, take it to the next level. It's delicious and it feels good. Also, when you live conscious or buy from Live Conscious, you give back because their partner, Eden Reforestation, is committed to planting 1 million trees, one tree for every purchase made. And you're helping the planet because Live Conscious is reducing its environmental impact by transitioning from plastic tubs to more eco-friendly packaging and stripping their bottles of their boxes. And for a limited time, get your next purchase of Beyond Brew with an exclusive 15% off for Raising Good Humans listeners only. Simply use the promo code HUMANS on WeLiveConscious.com. That's 15% off for Raising Good Humans listeners only. Simply use the promo code HUMANS on WeLiveConscious.com. Okay. So you know that I'm all about keeping it balanced, 
you of course aren't going to always have everything be homemade and perfect. And sometimes you just want to be a little fun, right? So try weeknight recipes that are easy as fill, roll, and bake from Pillsbury Crescents. They have delicious ingredients that you can add to transform the crescents from a side dish to a main dish. And your kids are going to be like, what? This is our dinner. And they'll be so pleased and think you're so fun. And it takes exactly 30 minutes, but I mean 30 minutes to make from the moment you take it out of the refrigerator until it's finished in the oven. It's not a lot of cooking and it's certainly not a lot of cleaning. My kids don't think I'm so spontaneous and fun for dinner choices. So offering Pillsbury Crescent Rolls to make a weeknight dinner easy is like, it's, it's a win for them. There are so many simple new recipes made with Pillsbury Crescent Rolls that you can just add to your weeknight dinner rotation. Just go to pillsbury.com. It's as easy as fill, roll, and bake. So find more weeknight dinner recipes at pillsbury.com. It's a little different from what I usually say because it's a little fun and we got to have a little fun and not so much seriousness all the time. Even just looking at all of these images, certainly for young people, it's harmful, full stop, especially the younger the brain. And it's really hard to get visual images out of your mind. And even for adults, I think it's, it, it's either desensitizing us because we have to shut down in order to take in that much horror, or it's activating us before we can think. And it's putting us into a fight mode that might not necessarily be the right fight. So I just, I, I see it as so harmful, but it's important for us to be able to have those conversations with young people so that we don't keep perpetuating this because this is kind of eerie what's happening. Eerie is like a very soft way of putting it and chilling. It's terrifying. I mean, yeah, I spent time on Telegram looking at, you know, like the Hamas channel and I've stopped looking at the pictures because I can't take it. My my nervous system can't take it anymore. And there is a, such a thing we've talked about such a thing as trauma fatigue. You see too much of that stuff and you can't process anymore. You get numb. So I've made a commitment to my audience that I don't share very graphic images. I will share, you know, people hurt by bombings or but I won't show the really gruesome stuff because I say you can find that at elsewhere. And I want to create a space where people can get the news without having to be exposed to that. Yeah. I mean, it is such, it's a voyeurism of other people suffering in yeah. a way, and it doesn't change. It doesn't help anyone. If you're trying to get, I mean, it's, but it's complicated because you still want to have conversations about what's going on and you still want to understand what's going on. But I do think that it's a lie in, in some people's minds that you need to see horror in order to empathize. And actually, I thought it was quite devastating that we're starting to get to the point where we see so much of it that we're asking for it as evidence. Mm. Like seeing, a, you know, like we can't just hear that this happened. Now we'd like to see it mm. before our eyes and we'd like to know that it wasn't AI somehow. Right. And, we, you know, we need more and more proof of horror and it's, it will mess with our capacity for empathy. Oh. That's amazing. I hadn't thought of that. We do have this problem and where I'm noticing that audiences 
go immediately to disbelief. The first thing is to reject. And I think that one of our biggest problems in the space of media is that we have not practiced the art of discernment, that multiple checking and then believing thing I talked about. So people don't actually know when to jump to belief. And so they're in a constant state of taking aim at everybody and everything, bringing in information, and then haphazardly grabbing at something that feels true. I hear that all the time, feels true. Instead of having a process for determining, I trust this source. And then if they tell me, I don't need to see the graphic photo, I can trust my source. I like the idea of having a process for consuming this information and making it intentional so that you don't get into exactly what you're talking about, just sort of like hunting for the horror and the story that you want it to be. One last question, although I have many more questions, so we can keep going. But one last question is, how much news do you think we need to consume in order to be informed citizens? Amazing question. I recommend a news diet, and I advise that people take a time, just like you think about what you eat or your exercise routine or anything else, to decide these are my sources, these are my favorite sources, pick three to five, and then consciously in your head, set a goal of checking the news only three times a day. We don't always keep to our goals, but it helps to have that. Maybe it's, you know, right before I go to work or school, maybe it's midday at lunch, maybe it's right after dinner or right before. And then check your three to five sources during those times and don't go down the rabbit hole. So you know that if you're reading a post that takes you to another post that takes you to another post, you can say to yourself, wait, where am I? This is no longer one of my sources. I'm going to step out because otherwise you end up, and I do it, I'm reading with obsessively something that I realize is some random person who lives you know, half a universe away from the conflict and has 300 followers. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> and we all do that, right? The other thing I, I advise is honestly during this, and I know it might sound woo-woo to some people, is after you're done, put the phone down and close your eyes for a minute and say, that's the news, this is me. And give yourself that like air gap so that you're not so empathically tied that you're in the crisis. And it's because it triggers what you're talking about, the fight or flight. And one trick I learned, because I really, you know, I have this bad, is if you feel like you're really in the crisis and you can't get grounded, I actually take off my shoes and I walk in grass or dirt, which actually- And actually get grounded. Yeah. It grounds you. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. And if we are trying to raise informed citizens who can- do right in the world and do good in the world. If our pain centers are lit up from so much of this empathy that we actually end up burning out, we can't activate in the positive ways of helping, which that activates our dopamine. And so it's actually harmful and it's well-meaning. I think it is well-meaning. And I wonder, I guess my last question along those lines is how much do you think young people need to know in order to, and now I'm talking about adolescents and college age because I really discourage people from even going through much news with elementary school students. I think in that case, you want to pick a couple of articles, 
have deeper conversations and show maps, but like keep it more simplified and manageable because even though we're overwhelmed, nothing is more scary, I think, to kids than our overwhelm not being named. Mm. And so just naming that there's overwhelm, here are some things, this is going to help understand it. This is why the adults around you are possibly seeming off the rails and then putting it away. But Mm. for older teenagers, how much is enough to become a positive citizen, but not so much that this is all you're thinking about and doing? I mean, I would recommend finding two places you like to read and read those places rather than scrolling it on your feed. And, you know, if it's a Substack you like, somebody you know has a cool blog and they're reliable, it's a newsletter that's good, that's cool. I I just think the more you can get it out of social media, the better, because the chances that you'll have it in, in a context or from a source, you whenever you're choosing to go to a thing, it's going to be a higher quality probably than something that's pushed at you. There's a better chance it's higher quality when you're choosing it than it's choosing you. That is great. That is a great point. So when you're on social media, the algorithm's feeding you stuff. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm arguing against my own book because, right, like I do a lot of my work on social media, but I also offer a newsletter so that people, when they say I trust you, can start coming to it on their own. And I just don't want everybody to be a victim of the algorithmic manipulation to the extent we are. And since we have so little control, let's exercise the control we do have, which is to log out and choose our news ourselves. So you had said that we sometimes get empathy overload and all that. What about coming to this stuff with compassion instead of empathy? Because I think of empathy as I feel what you're going through, and then you're like in the raging waters of it. Whereas compassion feels like, I'm just working shopping this, but compassion feels more like I'm I'm observing and caring, but I'm still present with myself. There is a German researcher who does research, who looks at this. And my understanding is that it is along the lines of what I said, which is that empathy lights up your pain centers Mm. and because you are feeling the feelings and at a certain point, your body is going to have to, as a protective mechanism, shut down. Whereas compassion means that you have stepped back outside of that, you know, circle of being in the feelings and you're able to say, I can help because I understand that there is suffering, but I am not suffering. And that helping lights up your dopamine, which promotes the stuff you want. And so I do think that you, compassion comes from curiosity, pausing, breathing, thinking. And, you know, you do need to have a little bit of empathy first, but the capacity to pause and breathe and say, okay, I am not the news. I am in this moment, in this body, I am safe. And for people who identify with, I I think anybody who identifies with the groups that are currently in the war, there is a secondary kind of trauma that might be coming up. So it's even more important to say, I have to recognize I am here, I am safe, and how can I be of service versus what we see in everybody. We're seeing actual fight, flight, or freeze happening in real time as people are responding in that way. So I think as you're workshopping it, it is rooted in science. Good. I'm glad to know. It sounds so wise coming from you. (laughs) 
there was one last thing that I wanted to ask you. Are there signs? Are there easy, quick ways of eyeballing something that is propaganda? Listen, you can't always know, but I think if you feel lit up, if you feel that that feeling like I'm incredibly outraged or I'm incredibly traumatized or I'm shocked or sad, that is what propaganda tries to do. It tries mm. to get into your emotional core be- and bypass your brain. So when you feel like you're responding from absolute emotion before your brain, that's when I pause and say, huh, I wonder what if this is propaganda. And then propaganda isn't always a lie. It's often, it's sometimes disinformation, untrue, but it's also something that's just a little piece of the story. But because it's just the piece, it skews the whole thing so it has no real meaning. It, it changes the meaning. And so when you feel that thing, that stab of emotion, I would pause and wonder, is this the whole story and is it the right story? Those are great questions that we can ask ourselves and we can share those two questions. Last question about propaganda is, how do we know if we are inadvertently promoting propaganda? Listen, if you don't know the source and it's not one of the people that you have checked out three times, right? And they've been reliable and right. And you've looked at their page and the context resonates with you and they seem accurate and it doesn't trigger that emotional thing. I think you're, you know, good to share. I would ask you to also check it against Google and see if other news sources are doing it, but maybe that's like unrealistic and people won't. I do. And if it doesn't meet those standards, I would be cautious and wonder if it's propaganda. If you see something that is so outrageous that your first instinct is, oh my God, I have to hit reshare, pause. Stop. Mm -hmm. That's the first clue that you better, that something might be fishy here. I agree. Everybody needs to take a massive social media break, but if they aren't and they go to at Jessica Yellen, there is really news, not noise. And you have a Substack newsletter that is wonderful. And, you know, people need to seek out reliable and valid resources just like you do when you're consuming scientific information, because you can tell any story you want. And it it's important to be able to learn early and practice being rigorous, critical thinkers and consuming this information in a way that will not just serve you, but ultimately not to get too cheesy, but this is what will serve the world. <laughs> Sometimes cheesy is true. <laughs> I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's really hard to feel safe with information that you're consuming. Thank you. And thank you for what you do for both this message and how you coach me sometimes. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.